transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. So, you might be thinking, it's not really Earth Day. Earth Day was Saturday. Saturday, the magical 420 day. The day that combines a great love of marijuana, a love of the earth, and Hitler's birthday, all in one day. But, in reality, the first large Earth Day celebration, April 22nd, 1970, 49 years ago today, held in Philadelphia, giant rally, and it began a shocking series of bipartisan environmental legislation, including the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and we take the Endangered Species Act a little bit for granted today, or at least until a few years ago, but in 1970, bald eagles were dying, and that's on American money, so that was a crisis, and it was the Richard Nixon administration that pushed all this stuff through, so it just goes to show you that what you think of a historical figure does not always line up to the actual actions that the administration did. Of course, you know all the terrible things that happened during that same time, but to get the Environmental Protection Agency and the Endangered Species Act made into law, federal law that was aggressively prosecuted, was a... shock and it was such a pleasant surprise that a lot of people kind of started to relax and think well when things are really bad they'll do something next year will be the 50th anniversary of Earth Day and I bet you the ace isn't going to have me for that probably going to get Kanye or something it's going to be a big deal So you'll be able to say, I was there the year before. On that first Earth Day, there was a guy up on the stage, a guy for a long time who claimed that he was the master of ceremonies of the first Earth Day. And he was up on stage before a crowd of thousands and thousands There were various politicians speaking, Sierra Club leaders, etc. But this guy got up there for an hour and preached an environmental, ecological message. He was a professor, and he was a counterculture activist, and his name was Ira Einhorn. 
wasn't known outside of that circle for a while. Until in 1977, when his living girlfriend, Holly Maddox, disappeared. She had actually moved to New York, came back to get her things, and was never seen again. Police questioned the well-known environmental activist Ira Einhorn, and he said, "Well, she just went down to the health food co-op to pick up some kale or whatever, and she never came back. It's a very violent city. I don't know what happened to her." And as he was white and a college professor, they let him off until 18 months later. 18 months later, the neighbor who lived underneath Ira Einhorn's apartment, now Ira called himself the unicorn. Because, right, Einhorn, one horn. The neighbor underneath Professor Unicorn's apartment reported something coming out of the ceiling. A thick brown liquid. And it smelled real bad. And they called the building super. The super took a look and said, that smells like something dead and is not the usual rat. So they called the police. The police had a file on the apartment above. Iris still lived there. Well, they came in and they found his girlfriend, Holly Maddox, who had been murdered and dead for 18 months at that point. The top part of her was mummified and the bottom part of her was liquefied. The newspaper headline was Ecological Leader, Compost Girlfriend. He was charged with murder, again being a apparently respected member of the community and having the money for bail. He jumped bail and went to Europe. He lived in various countries that did not have extradition treaties with the United States at the time. He was in Ireland for a while. The pressure got onto him. Eventually, he went to France. And finally, France turned him over to the United States, where he was convicted of murder and put in prison. He chose to defend himself. Now, while previously he told everybody he was the founder of Earth Day, now he was telling everybody that he knew too much about the CIA's paranormal military research laboratories. The weird thing is he might have. Nonetheless, he killed her. He was a very twisted murderer. And the newspapers, especially the newspapers that were critical of the environmental movement, really enjoyed the story that he was the founder of Earth Day. 
You just couldn't read a newspaper headline about it that didn't mention that he was the founder of Earth Day. There was only one problem with it. Time Magazine made it up. He was not the founder of Earth Day. Earth Day in Philadelphia had a council of 33 people from all sorts of groups, nonprofits, government officials, volunteers. He was not part of that. Instead, he jumped on the stage and seized the mic for an hour to try to prevent Senator Ed Muskie, the man from Maine, who had run and failed to get through the primary against Nixon in 72, to keep Ed Muskie off the stage, this guy stood up there grandstanding for an hour. And this either accidental mistake that Time Magazine printed, or perhaps intentional to stick it to the Enviro hippies, was repeated again and again and again and again and again and again, including after he was brought back to the United States and tried, which was in the late 1990s, 1998, I believe. He'd been out of the country for 20, almost 20 years at that point. It was March 1979 when the body was found. So now you know a little bit about Earth Day. The What's that? I, I can't hear you over. Oh, why did he kill her? He was a he was a nutcase. Uh, he killed her because she wanted to not be with him. In fact, what he did is he lured her back to his apartment by saying if she didn't come and get her stuff, he was going to throw it all out on the street. So she came back to get her stuff and he murdered her. in a trunk, in a closet, wrapped in sleeping bags and blankets and Lysol and ice packs. And, and apparently never thought to move or just thought he was too smart. You know, there's a, there's a certain kind of murderer who just thinks, I'm, I'm far too smart. Is Philadelphia homicide detectives aren't going to get me? I invented Earth Day. So that was the unicorn who did not start Earth Day. Earth Day was actually started by the former Wisconsin senator and I believe governor, Gaylord Nelson, who became a environmental activist after he left office. And it was a big, big success. There were rallies all over America. Eventually it spread across the globe, which is nice, you know, Earth Day. But it did start as a political and nonprofit response to what was just absolute horror. None of you, it doesn't look like, are old enough to have lived during that time. You're all too young. I don't remember it too well myself, except that the skies were brown, the rivers had bubbles in them bubbles from chemicals and sewage and other such delights. And I never saw a raptor in the wild until probably the early 1990s. 
you just didn't see him. Now, there are, there are people associated with this kind of stuff that uh, did not end up murdering their lovers. So, if you're thinking about going into the environmental field and you're worried, don't be. There's lots of, there's lots of stuff you can do without uh, turning to the dark side. Is anyone here familiar with uh, Minerva Hamilton Hoyt? Oh, that must be Miss Johnson. So Minerva Hamilton Hoyt should be known as well as John Muir. She should be known as well as Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring. That was the book in 1962 that really started the environmental movement in this country. Silent Spring, because the springs around where she lived were all dead. No birds, no ducks, no bugs. Just dead from chemicals. That was when the Ohio River would frequently catch on fire. And you'd get little alerts in the newspaper. County Parks suggests you don't go fishing in this part of the river because it's currently on fire. And then the oil and chemicals would burn off and people would, would return, at least try to fish. Minerva Hamilton Hoyt was born on a plantation in Mississippi at the end of the Civil War. She married a doctor, I believe, and they moved to Pasadena, where they lived a life of leisure and cocktail parties among the orange groves. And she was naturally inclined toward botany, although she did not have formal education in it. She educated herself. And she was very much interested in gardening. And gardening, Southern California was a gardening paradise as people came from around the country, especially the cold places, and realized anything will grow. All you have to do is pump water from the Sierra. But there's always sunshine, and things will grow, and the soil is good. So she had gardening clubs. She was in the Botanical Society. And life was good. And in, the, in a one-year period, her husband and her infant child both died. And she was distraught. And she, like so many people from... Moses to Mary Hunter Austin, uh, author of The Land of Little Rain, went out to the desert to find solace, to find comfort in the raw, wild desert wilderness, which was so different from the cultivated, cultured, and comfortable life that she had in Pasadena, but a life that had very much lost its meaning as she became the only surviving member of her family. I think the orcs are coming. <laughs> the the war horn is a new... Is that a new... <laughs> the drums were bad enough. <laughs> They're right next to So, Minerva Hoyt was not what you would picture as your typical kind of desert adventurer. 
every picture you see of her, she's got a big hat with carnations or whatever around it and a long flowing dress and you know kid gloves, which were made out of baby goats. That's what that's the kid. Mink around her neck, that kind of thing. She did not look like Bad Abby, you know. But she loved the desert and she understood it. And she knew every plant, she knew every cactus, she knew everything that flowered and when it flowered. And as she began to explore this area, and curiously, for this time, we're talking the 1910s at this point, she traveled only with our domestic as they were called at the time. Her full-time housekeeper, nurse, babysitter, who was African-American. And they went out into the wild all the time and took no guff from anyone. They would set up, as many desert biologists did in this time, before the days of nylon tents that you could zip all the doors and windows to, they would bring a camp bed on a actual bed frame so that the scorpions want to crawl up into your bed. They brought furniture, Victorian furniture, camping, which is not really crazier than what a lot of people bring camping if you've been to a campground recently. Minerva Hoyt started noticing, you know where the windmills are? When you come into Palm Springs, that area used to be one of the most densely vegetated parts of the Colorado Desert. Now it's fed by Whitewater Creek coming down from San Gorgonio. It gets plenty of water. And she noticed that amateur gardeners and landscapers were driving out to that area. So when you get off the 62 from the 10 and go north, they were digging up everything and taking it back to Los Angeles because anything would grow in Los Angeles. Barrel cactus, choya, yuccas. Some of these things, like yuccas, have such long tap roots that it's almost impossible to transport them. You have to use a special tree spade, which is about the size of a swimming pool to get out a Joshua tree or a yucca and relocate it so that it has a chance of living again. That's the, the law now up in Yucca Valley, for instance. If you build something and you have to take down Joshua trees or mature yuccas, use this big tree spade, and then people who live in the area are on the waiting list. And they'll call you, as I got a call once years ago. Oh, we got a, we got a Joshua tree for you the end of my property had burned in a, a brush fire. And then somebody got my Joshua tree. I'm not quite sure what happened there. They're highly prized things because they take a long, long time to grow to the point where they make an impressive Joshua tree. So she was heartbroken to find this place that she loved so much. Anywhere where it was close to a road, people were just jumping out of their Model A's or whatever and loading them up with everything they could dig out. You drive that road today, there's still no barrel cactus. There's no yucca. There's nothing but creosote. And 
this time of year, lots of wildflowers, which is very pretty. And she decided, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to get that FDR to make a national monument here. So she had connections because she was rich. So the Roosevelt administration in the early bad part of the Great Depression decided, all right, we're doing a lot of work, the kind of stuff that you now say is you know, Green New Deal sort of things. The Conservation Corps, they built campgrounds and trails and summer camps, fisheries. And it took her about 10 years of lobbying, but once she finally got to the Franklin Roosevelt administration, when lots of people needed work and there was no real estate expansion going on because nobody wanted to invest in anything, then it was a little easier to say, okay, we're going to take this federal land off the table, we're going to make it a national monument. She wanted to call it Desert Plants National Monument. The reason being, the rich variety of desert plants that remained in the high desert and in some parts of the low desert that weren't right by the roads. So today, Joshua Tree National Park became a national park in 1994, straddles two deserts, the Mojave High Desert on the north side and the lower Colorado Desert on the other side. We call it the Colorado Desert because it's nowhere near Colorado, but it is west of the Colorado River, which the Mojave mostly is too. It's uh, No one really knows. But it's mostly so that people who are kind of into this stuff can you know, kind of show off. When people say like, oh, well, the low desert, you mean the Colorado desert? You can also call it the Sonoran Desert. And it makes a little more sense because it is the part of the Sonoran Desert that is on this side of the Colorado River from Arizona. The park did not become Desert Plants National Monument. Instead, it became Joshua Tree National Monument. Even though it does not have a really substantial forest of Joshua trees, even though the biggest Joshua Tree forests are in what is now today Mojave National Preserve in the East Mojave and an area south of the Arizona Strip up in northwestern Arizona. Those are the densest Joshua Tree forests. Some parts of Joshua Tree National Park have no Joshua Trees at all. About half of it, actually. But the name stuck. It only took about 10 years for the conservatives and Congress to take away one-third of the National Monument. Minerva Hoyt has sadly been nearly forgotten by the conservation movement. Joshua Tree was not her only feather in her large hat. She also was instrumental in the creation of Death Valley National Monument, now also a national park. Anza Borrego Desert State Park, one of the largest state parks in the entire country. She was also brought to Mexico by the president, president of Mexico, the United States, and was instrumental in setting up three large desert ecological preserves 
that have expanded since then and take up a good chunk of the western part of the Mexican state of Sonora. And in fact, she was named by the Mexican press, the Apostle of the Cacti, which I thought was a very good name. And hopefully we will soon form a cult around uh, Minerva Hoyt. I think St. Minerva would be a good name. It's non-denominational, of course. And all you have to do is not climb up a Joshua tree like Miley Cyrus did. Now, this biologist straightened me out on the whole scorpion weed situation, and I'm sorry I cannot thank her by name because I cannot find the message. People use about 50 different messaging systems, Instagram and text messages and Signal and MySpace, and you know we used to have a pretty good system for text messaging. Just one system. It worked anywhere in the world with a post office. It was good enough for Benjamin Franklin, the first U.S. postmaster. The scorpion weed situation I am referring to was mentioned in our recent episode about the super bloom, the wildflowers that have gone so very crazy this spring. Just an incredible show that is ongoing even still. Some people have claimed the Canterbury Bells, those beautiful blue bell-shaped flowers that are all over the higher elevations right now. Well, some people said you should call these desert bluebells scorpion weed. But this biologist let me know that scorpion weed is a common name for those purple-blue things that have the basic shape of fiddle neck. There you go. And speaking of wrong names, I would like to just nip in the bud, as they say in Desert Biology, the ridiculous notion that Canterbury Bells should be called Desert Blue Balls. That is a rumor. Quick reminder that on Saturday night, April 27, we will be at the Joshua Tree Astronomy Arts Theater with our own Red, Blue, Black, Silver, and with Jeremy Corbell, who will be there with a screening of his hit documentary, Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. We've had a lot of UFO news this week. That's it for tonight's Desert Oracle Radio. I'm going to go over to La Copine and meet Jeremy for early dinner. Thanks for listening, and good night from the Voice of the Desert.